And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. What do you really think about Pierre Polyev? Well, Bruce's answers from recent research may surprise you. That's coming right up. Right then, it's Wednesday. Smoke, mirrors, and the truth with Bruce Anderson. Bruce is in Ottawa today. Hello, Peter. Hello there. Um, I love the headline on your column today, which is on your website at Spark. Um, and it's also can be found on National News Watch. Polyev, the strongest challenger Trudeau has faced. Okay, well, when you look back at who is face, this is, you know, Polyev is number four that's run against, is from the Conservative Party, that's run against um, Justin Trudeau. Stephen Harper, of course, lost. Andrew Scheer, lost. Aaron O'Toole, lost. And now it's Pierre Polyev. And you're telling me that of those, of the total of four of them, he's the strongest one. Now, what do you base that on? Yeah, well, I think that part of the the question for me was when Pierre Polyev ascended to the conservative leadership or won the conservative leadership, I guess there was a a tendency in the Ottawa bubble community, and perhaps I was part of that uh, tendency, to think that his style and the kind of messages that he'd been using in the past, especially through the convoy period, were going to grate on people and that he was not going to be a terribly effective uh, counterpoint to Justin Trudeau. And what the latest research that I've done shows is that's not exactly what's happening. Um, There are a couple of reasons for coming to the conclusion, at least at this point, that he looks like the most uh, formidable opponent that Justin Trudeau has faced. I mean, if you go back through time, Stephen Harper was Uh, pretty highly unpopular by the time that election rolled around. Um, And so while Trudeau was kind of running in third in the run-up to that uh, election campaign, you could see in Harper's unpopularity or the fatigue with Harper that there was a chance that that, uh, Trudeau could overcome him as a challenger and kind of deliver a message of change that was appealing to people. Um, Against Andrew Scheer, I think it was clear to me that even the conservative membership who ultimately chose him, uh, they took 13 ballots to do it. He wasn't even that unifying a force within the conservative movement, and he wasn't that effective a a counterpuncher to Trudeau or a challenger to Trudeau. And Aaron O'Toole, who I think could have been uh, with the external marketplace, uh, outside the party, he had trouble rallying the party as well for different reasons than Andrew Scheer, but um, that made him not a terribly effective competitor. What Pierre Polyev is doing and what I see in the data now, Peter, is I think he's spent a lot of time uh, with messages that are really just about criticizing Trudeau, demonizing Trudeau, kind of uh, pumping up the cuss word against Trudeau kind of uh, thing. But more recently, I hear him talking about issues in a way that I think will resonate with people, and the research suggests it is. What do I mean by that? When he says 
I want to fight for powerful paychecks. You know, some people can think, well, that's a kind of a hokey line, but um, people don't necessarily who are outside of politics think of it as hokey. They just think of it as relevant, you know, powerful paychecks. I get what he's talking about. When he talks about the healthcare system, he tends to avoid talking about systemic changes, macro changes. He talks about more and more nurses more quickly. When he talks about housing affordability, he doesn't talk about programs and billions of dollars in spending. He talks about, we've got to stop talking about what we're going to do to improve housing affordability. And we need to get to a place where our kids can afford homes. Now, a lot of people hearing me say this will say, well, he doesn't necessarily have a plan to back that up. That's just uh, smoke and mirrors. And that may well all be true. I'm just looking at it from the standpoint of how is the public reacting to it? And so there were three or four questions in the poll that that um, I, I wrote about yesterday. One is, um, to each of these two individuals, Trudeau and Poliev, to be basically good people. And Trudeau's number is, I think, 58% say yes. Uh, but Polly Everett's number is two points higher than that. Um, do each of them have a plan that will help you for the future? Um, Trudeau's number is not great. Polly Everett's number is better. Neither of them have great numbers because a lot of people don't pay enough attention to politics to be able to say, I know exactly what the plan is. But Polly Everett is beating Trudeau on that. Polly Everett is also beating Trudeau on the question of, does he understand your life? And so if I'm Trudeau heading into an election against this guy, it's better for me to realize that he's connecting with people as a challenger, as somebody who is saying things that resonate with people more than the things that Trudeau is saying resonate with people. And part of that is the the, the tissue that comes from that many years of incumbency. You end up sounding like an administrator who's telling everybody about the things they've done somebody on the other side sounds like a politician who's talking about the things they will do. And uh, I think the poll that I published was really meant um, to be interpreted by anybody in whatever way is useful for them. But for the liberals, if I were them, I would look at it as a real warning signal, not to take this guy lightly, to recognize the degree of, of risk that he poses by communicating in the way that he does. Okay, let me ask you a couple of questions about that. Uh, in the three areas that you talked about, three or four areas, Polyev is clearly in the lead in each one, but it's very tight, right? It's, it's sort of margin of error stuff. Would that be fair to say? No, no, no. On those uh, those questions, it's beyond the margin of error. I'll just uh, follow up the number there for a second. The first one you mentioned was like two points, so that would be margin And for the future is... Uh, five-point gap okay and understands your life understands your life is a it's like a 10-point gap okay that's to me that's the key question right uh as we head towards an election that that could be a key question okay so it's more than just margin i think the only numbers you gave us in in your rundown was the first one which was like two points two or three points yes um okay uh now how about how is it distributed across the country? Is it the normal pockets that we see in in the, in the classic polling that we see every month, or is it um, well? What is it? You know. Are, well, 
you know, not surprisingly, there are um, there are tendencies that have to do with who people um, generally vote. But there were a couple of things that stood out. First of all, if we if we just compare a separate question, which is overall favorability of leaders, which um, David Coletto and Abacus has been tracking for a long time. It is important to remember that um, Trudeau was more popular than Harper, than O'Toole, than Scheer, and he's less popular than Pierre Polyev using that favorability indicator. So even when you take into account the fact that people in the prairies are more likely to say they like the conservative leader and people uh, Ontario and parts of Eastern Canada more likely say they like the liberal leader. You're still dealing with a situation where on that overall favorability indicator, the balance is tilted towards the conservative challenger rather than the liberal incumbent. But maybe the most interesting thing for me in the breakouts, Peter, is this. Uh, you and I remember when Preston Manning uh, rode into Ottawa with a message of change um, and that was intended to kind of resonate with almost a blue-collar male market. And one of the things that he did is he pulled votes from the NDP. And one of the things that I see in the data about Polyev's message is that he's not attracting some of those voters who would otherwise NDP because they like the convoy or uh, because they like toying with um, uh, with, with people like Dean Anderson. It's because the message is, I want to fight for the people who dig things out of the ground, who make things with it, who, you know, work those kinds of jobs that, um, that a lot of NDP oriented voters kind of associate as being the, the, the kind of the blue collar. So that's the most surprising thing for me is that for the liberals to beat the conservatives, it is always pretty important for them to draw votes from the NDP. They haven't really had a challenge with Harper, O'Toole, or Scheer, where the conservatives were trying to get those votes or some of those votes too. But I think Pierre Polyev is, and I think he's making some progress with it. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I was, just, I was just, just talking last week to the head of one of the you know, the biggest unions in in the country that, you know, the traditional unions that have always been uh, kind of NDP supporters. And, um, and and this fellow told me, he said, conservatives are all in on trying to get our vote. They're all over us. They want to attend meetings. They want to speak at conferences. Uh, they're there. Uh, they're not, they're not sitting in the, you know, in the bush waiting for an election. They're working at it right now. I mean, that is a startling number that you said on a, in one particular um, uh, situation that you threw out there. Uh, you had three out of four NDP voters finding that particular remark uh, appealing to them. Three out of four NDP voters. That's pretty, that's pretty huge. Find the idea of powerful paychecks and appealing theme. And so what I think is interesting about that is that that's not the same as saying I'm going to vote conservative, but it's so far from I'll never vote conservative because they're not for me. They don't share my values, right? And it's also not a cultural thing. And I think this is one of the things that Polyev is trying to get more right the longer he sits in this job. Is that if, and I don't think he gets it perfectly right. In fact, I think one of the things we're going to talk about um, a little later in, in the program is, 
he got involved in a bit of a culture war thing again yesterday uh, around the CBC. But when he moves away from culture war and he talks about economics and housing costs, powerful paychecks, uh, that's where these voters who are looking for somebody who will fight for them uh, are hearing language that sounds like he will fight for them. And part of it is the language. You know, I, I wrote in the piece that government can sound like a lot of comfortable administrators, and it's deadly from a communication standpoint. People don't really hear what it is they're saying because the sound of it is so fuzzy and so technocratic and, frankly, so boring uh, that it doesn't cut through. And also, government has so many matters, whereas I think Polyev is being pretty disciplined. You hear these powerful paychecks a lot. You hear cut waste. Uh, cap on necessary spending, and people really they understand those terms and they're appealing to them, they and do. they separate themselves from the culture war thing. They they do they do find it appealing clearly, but at a certain point they're going to ask, okay, fine, how are you going to do it? And will they though? That, that's that's always the argument going into a campaign, right? Do you do you really lay out what your what you actually would do to achieve the goals you're promising? Stephen Harper told them, don't do it now. Don't do it now. Leave it to the last minute. Um, because the, the, the liberals will either steal the idea or they'll, they'll so trash it that it won't be worth anything by the time we get to an election campaign. Uh, but it is a challenge because at a certain point, people will start asking that question. Here's the other conclusion you had. Thir- I just on that, though, Peter, yeah. I, I, look, I think that's what should happen. And I think that it's a theory of what happens but it isn't always what happens. And um, I think Harper stopped putting out a, uh, if I'm not mistaken, stopped putting out a platform in an election campaign. That's right. Sheer, I don't think, put out a platform in an election campaign. If he did, it was maybe at the very end. Um, O'Toole did, in particular, because he had this kind of tremendous pressure on the climate change issues specifically. Um, but I guess my point is, if there's only one or two debates um, and the media are maybe 25% of what they were 15 years ago or 20 years ago in terms of just the sheer amount of coverage, let alone the amount of coverage that's devoted to the substantive policy choices on offer. It's more theoretical, I think, than practically accurate to say that people at some point go, well, wait, you've been saying nice things, but I don't know exactly how you're going to implement them. Sometimes people just gravitate towards the, the nice-sounding messages and the hope, and if if one party is saying we can make things better, and the other party is essentially sounding like we've already made things better, uh, that becomes part of the dynamic. And again, I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying maybe that is what um, this election could be about if the liberals don't get more focused on the challenge that they face with this guy. Yeah, I I, I hear you on that, and that's especially so the longer any one particular party is being in power, and people are just kind of sick of them. Um, and they'll, they'll, they'll literally go anywhere uh, to get away from them. I, you know, at times it looks like we're facing that situation now, but there's no election today. So we don't know what yep. it's going to be like by the time uh, there is an election. Um, okay, let me, let me get to, you mentioned it a moment ago, because if the assumption here is a lot of what uh, Polyev is saying 
is being embraced to some degree by the electorate, right? Doesn't necessarily mean they're going to vote for him, but they kind of like what they're hearing. And they feel that he's, he's talking about what they're thinking about and what they want to hear talked about. So uh, in the last couple of days, he's done this thing, and, I, you know, it's always awkward for me to talk about the CBC because I spent, you know, 50 years there. But because I spent those 50 years there, I never talked about the CBC because it just seemed like a conflict. It doesn't anymore. Uh, so I don't mind bringing this up. So yesterday, um, Polyev tweets, uh, trying to get it here, of course, as always, when you think you have it at your fingertips, is not there. Uh, here it is. He, he tweets yesterday, we must protect Canadians against disinformation and manipulation by state media. I didn't know we had any state media in Canada. I, I know that we have uh, a, a public, uh, publicly owned um, broadcaster in the CBC, but nevertheless, he goes on to say, that is why I'm asking Twitter and Elon Musk to accurately label the CBC as government-funded media. Now, Musk has said this about other organizations lately, including the BBC and others. Polyev concludes, it is a fact and Canadians deserve the facts. Okay. So I guess my question to you is going to be, is this what the Canadian public at large feels is, are they, is the public at large or is it just his base that will embrace um, that kind of description of, of the CBC? And let, let me remind you, just in case some of our listeners are, are wondering about this, who started the CBC? Where was the CBC created? When was it created? It was created in 1932 by R.B. Bennett. Who was R.B. Bennett? He was the 11th Prime Minister of Canada. What party did R.B. Bennett represent when he created the forerunner of the CBC? Why? He was a conservative. The conservatives brought the CBC into being. Now, that was a long time ago. Lots of things have changed since then, but it shouldn't be forgotten as many of those in the Conservative Party do forget, because I've been in the position of having to remind them, some in former cabinets, by the way, that it was the Conservatives who started the CBC. Nevertheless, here we go. In a description of Canada's public broadcaster, that's why it was created. R.B. Bennett created the CBC for a reason. The influence of American broadcasters squeezing into Canada and nobody telling Canadian stories. That was the idea behind the CBC. You can argue, and I argue too, uh, how well it's fulfilled that mandate over the years, and especially right now. Uh, but that was the reason R.B. Bennett, Conservative Prime Minister of Canada, created the CBC. So what happens if the CBC is tossed aside, as Polyev continues to let his supporters believe he will eventually do? Well, I don't know. Who's the national broadcaster these days who's doing Canadian content, telling Canadian stories all the time, or just rerunning American programming? Anyway, I'm ranting, and this is not the ranter's show. 
Well, this I was just going to go for, for a it. bit. I think it's good. Um, look, uh, Peter, I think the, I think what Mr. Polyev is doing with the CBC is harmful. I think it's, um, I think it's ill-advised from a public policy standpoint. I think the only reason that he's doing it is that every once in a while, he feels like he needs to do something, take some action that resonates with the more fringe part of the coalition uh, that the Conservative Party is seeking. And so taking a swipe at the CBC is pretty reliable uh, in terms of the resonance it has with that, that fraction of the Conservative base. It is also true that over the years, the number of people who aren't in that base who feel like they want to rise up in defense of the CBC is smaller and more soft-spoken than has been the case. Now, part of that is maybe the CBC has underperformed at at kind of creating that sense of what it's really about and what it's trying to do or the quality of the programming. And part of it is that the fragmentation in the media universe means, unlike the days when I was uh, delivering the Gazette and the Star and there were only three channels available on the TV, there are still an awful lot of other ways that people can get information or entertainment today. So I think the CBC is is weak now. I think it's poorly led. I think it's been poorly led for a while. I think that its effort is kind of fragmented in terms of people being able to knit together the pieces of it and decide that there is a an entire kind of purpose for it that that we would be uh, we would be worse off if we lost, but we are better off with a CBC. Um, we are a country that struggles uh, to have the financial models that can get information and disseminate it. We see the breakdowns of private sector media models, and we should be worried about those. Um, we know that um, the scale of our market also makes it hard for um for national news to be gathered and disseminated professionally. And so if we don't do it through some sort of collective enterprise like the CBC, we're going to be left with a a small group of companies that don't really have their heart in it because you can't make very much money in it. So I think it's it's, it's quite the wrong approach for him to take, but I think I understand why he's, he's taking it. And the last thing I'll say is that, um, the pretense that, Anything that has government involved as an investor or an owner is going to distribute propaganda and that what isn't owned by government is going to distribute fact is ludicrous on the surface of it. Um, And, you know, I noticed that some people are saying also that there is some government ownership of Twitter. It's the Saudi uh, royal family that has the second biggest, or I guess one of member of the Saudi royal family has the second biggest shareholding in it. So that's a real false uh, dichotomy there for sure. Okay. Enough on the CBC. Well, I'll, I'll say one last thing on the CBC. Um, the idea of, of, of Canadian broadcasting, as I said, started in 1932. 36 was when CBC radio was officially started and and the corporation was named the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. And one of the reasons CBC radio was started was to serve rural Canadians um, with news that directly impacted them. You know, farm prices, cattle prices, you know, grain prices, you name it. Um, 
And one of the driving forces behind that was the then prime minister in the early 30s. Did I tell you who that was? His name was R.B. Bennett. He was a conservative. I can't remember whether I mentioned that or not. He was also the first prime minister of Canada to be elected in a riding in Alberta. And that was some of the, I mean, he grew up in New Brunswick, as many people know. But his riding was in Alberta, Calgary. Um, and, uh, and he was, he cared and was concerned about the rural, uh, parts of Canada, many of which still today depend, especially on CBC radio for those similar things, even yeah. though the farm yeah. broadcasts aren't the way they, they used to be. Um, but nothing's the way it used to be. And, uh, well, you know, the, the thing that, that occurs to me, this notion that, that, Governments use the CBC as a state, quasi-state broadcaster so silly. I mean, uh, I've known politicians in conservative governments and liberal governments. I've never known one who said, oh, well, let's throw this story to the CBC and they'll do it exactly the way that we want it. <laughs> it doesn't work that way. It's without a shred of evidence uh, to back up that idea that, that the CBC is a... Uh, I, I think the thing that bothers uh, people like Polyev, or at least some of his supporters, is that they see a balance of content that reflects a broader set of values, including values that they don't particularly share. And there are about 60 to 65% of Canadians who identify as more progressive and the rest as conservative. So if you're hardcore conservative, you're going to see things that reflect the country, but don't feel like they are exactly aligned with your values. And maybe that can be frustrating, but that's not a reason to throw out the CBC. And so I do think the government has a really important choice, maybe the most important leadership choice that they will ever have made about the presidency of the CBC. Uh, it's hard on the surface of it to see a reason why they should reappoint the person who's been running it for the last five years. Uh, it's uh, it's a, there is an existential risk and there's no time to get it wrong. No, I, I would uh, agree with you that this decision um, and the future of the CBC, it's at a crossroads right now. Uh, and, you know, the decision is a critical one. And the future of the CBC kind of hangs in the balance and is going to be determined not just by people, but by what the CBC does as a broadcaster and how yep. it serves the people uh, from sea to sea to sea with real Canadian content that they're interested in watching and will watch. And if that doesn't happen and television, radio. Or listen to. Radio, yeah. yeah, or listen to, although radio is a pretty podcasts. loyal audience. Yeah. Uh, and podcasts, you know, uh, there's uh, no question about that. Um, okay, we're going to take our uh, our our break, uh, and but we've got a couple more things to talk about, and they're kind of in a similar vein. So we'll uh, we'll get to them right after this. Welcome back. You're listening to Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth, the Wednesday episode of The Bridge. Bruce Anderson's in Ottawa. I'm Peter Mansbridge, and uh, I'm on the other side of the pond. I'm in uh, Scotland. 
and uh, enjoying every moment that I've got here as I'm doing a few things, including writing. My next book is coming out uh, with, co-authored with Mark Bulgich, uh, and that'll be due this fall. Can't tell you much about it yet, but I will be able to tell you about it uh, in the next couple of months, <laughs> if I ever get it finished. Um, as usual, Mark's way ahead of me on that front, but um, we're getting there. Okay, um, next topic. I'm not sure how to go about this one. Um, but it all started as a result of the Justice Minister, David Lametti, who I don't think we've ever talked about on this program before, uh, but uh, not an insignificant cabinet post, an important one. He was speaking to uh, a group of the Assembly of First Nations. And at one point, one of the uh, participants uh, had this to say, one of the AFN people, and he was Grand Chief Brian Hardlot, and uh, Chief Donald Maracle of the Mohawks of the Bay of Quinte. This is what they said. Canada exports natural resources to other countries. They earn trillions of dollars in revenues from those resources. Those resources were given to the provinces without ever asking one Indian if it was okay to do that. Or what benefits would the First Nations expect to receive by Canada consenting to that arrangement? Well, David Lametti, who was sitting there listening to all this, decided to answer this way. I obviously can't pronounce on that right now, but I do commit to looking at that, he told the AFN. It won't be uncontroversial, is the only thing I would say, with a bit of a smile. Well, he was right about that. Uh, it certainly <laughs> became controversial in a hurry as soon as the Western Premiers heard about it in Alberta, in Saskatchewan, and Manitoba. They all kind of leapt ahead of what Lametti actually said, although he did, you know, he didn't close the option down, Lametti. He kind of laid it out there. Um, but they, the, the premiers have said he's on his way to doing this. And Pierre Polyev said the same thing, demanding that they uh, pull back on this decision, they claimed, which was in the works. So this, you know, Ottawa versus the West is a constant. Ottawa versus the West on issues of natural resources is a real uh, potential flamethrower in that relationship. Um, and that's kind of the way the week has been on this. What, what do you make it? Was this just sort of a minister saying perhaps a little more than he should have said in the way he was trying to describe the situation or answer the question or answer the statement? Or is there something you know, in this that the premier should be pouncing on? Uh, no, I don't think there is something that the premier should be pouncing on. I think that the decision to pounce was a political calculation. Um, uh, you know, probably if, if Mr. Lametti had to do it over again, if in fact he did smile as he said, it won't be uncontroversial, that wasn't uh, maybe the best way to deliver that, the point that he wanted to make. It is a serious enough issue that, um, and I think he, he found in the aftermath that um, if it looked like he was being a little bit political, then he was opening himself up to this kind of criticism. But I think at the heart of it, his mandate um, in his role 
is to figure out a path to implement the United Nations Declaration that Canada agreed to with respect to the rights of Indigenous people. Now, part of how he has to do that is he has to listen to the representations of Indigenous leaders. And that's what was happening in that room. They raised an idea that unquestionably would be controversial within Canada, unquestionably would be a constitutional uh, showdown, or at least a constitutional challenge by the provinces, which I'm not a lawyer, but probably they would win. Um, but be that as it may, these Indigenous leaders are asked to participate in these conversations, are entitled to say what they believe is the right approach with respect to um, the treatment of resources. And it is incumbent upon the justice minister to say, uh, I'm here to listen. He didn't say that he was going to take their uh, request and implement it. And what Daniel Smith, the Alberta Premier, and I guess Scott Moe, the Premier of Saskatchewan, did is that they took that exchange and said, we interpret this as though the federal government may try to grab our resources. And then in turn, Pierre Polyev said, we think that the Trudeau government is going to do this. Um, and I think that those politicians were doing that. We're trying to create more heat than they were shed some light on an important issue. Uh, so, uh, you know, a little bit of the culture war, and it isn't really just a question of uh, who should control uh, resources. And, you know, Mr. Polyev's language, I think where he said, I'm never going to uh, let Ottawa take resources away from Westerners. The implication is that the Indigenous people, uh, in this case, are not Westerners. Um, so I, I don't think it was a great day for the the, the Conservatives, uh, but I do think that they probably raised some eyebrows and rallied a little bit of of support around the messages. And I do think that probably Mr. Lametti, if he had it to do over again, would do it a little bit differently. Just to clarify on the, the smile issue, um, that wasn't a description a reporter wrote of what happened when he made his comment that he was smiling. It was actually in the quote. You know, his actual you quote was, "It won't." this is Lametti's quote, it won't be uncontroversial is the only thing I would say with a bit of a smile. That's his quote. So the smile. Line, yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty awkward. I, I don't yeah. really see the you know the value of that part of that sentence, but um. yeah. Um, no, I I think it is one of those things where you, upon reflection, although I understand and I didn't understand as well as you just put it to me, the kind of box he's in, given um, the 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 whole idea behind reconciliation is to listen, right? and to hear uh, the concerns and the questions and the comments that are expressed um, on both sides. And, um, but, it, you know, the thing is that will just get added, continued to the mix on sure. the whole relationship between Ottawa and the West. Well, and, and the box is worse, Peter, in a way, uh, because when you listen and look at the facts, as I'm told, um, what becomes revealed is even more evidence that 
governments in Canada entered into agreements with Indigenous people with respect to resources and land, um, and then violated those agreements and have never really been held to account for that. And so listening carefully takes you to a place where you, you know, what's revealed is um, not that there was a, not simply that there was a sense of grievance because um, indigenous people saw their land taken over, but there were actual agreements that were entered into by governments that were never formally abrogated, but just not implemented and are lived up to. And I think that's a reality that if I'm critical of the conservatives on this, is that they don't want, and the premiers as well, is that they don't seem to want to acknowledge that that is a truth. Um, and, and I think the liberals are doing the right thing by saying, we're never going to get to a place of full reconciliation unless we recognize certain truths like that, that are documented, that are apparent if you spend any time looking at them. And I know you spend a lot of time on these issues as well. Last, um, last topic for today. This one surprised me. I didn't, I didn't, maybe I'm naive. <laughs> I am naive. I'm naive on a lot of things, but clearly on this one, um, do you read Politico in the mornings? You know, the political mm, playback. Occasionally. Yeah. Um, it comes out of Ottawa, uh, the Ottawa uh, kind of notebook, playbook of from Politico. I, yeah, I read it a couple of times a week. Um, they clearly go to a lot of a lot of work to put together their their daily um, online piece. There's something in there today that I didn't realize. I mean, I knew we had, there was a parliamentary delegation uh, in uh, Taiwan right now. Um, and you hear about parliamentary delegations going to different places, um, not all the time, but quite often. There's a fair number every year. Uh, this one has 10 MPs from different parties in Taiwan. Here's what I was surprised about. Not what they were talking about. I mean, it was kind of obvious. If you go to Taiwan these days, you know what you're going to end up talking about. But what surprised me was who paid for it. It's not Canada didn't pay for it. The political parties that these MPs represented didn't pay for it. It was paid for by the Taiwanese. They cover all the costs. And that's similar to a lot of these other parliamentary delegations that travel overseas. Now, I don't know. Something doesn't feel right to me about that. It, were you aware of that? Uh, on this specific one, no, but I I was generally aware that <clears throat> parliamentary delegations are often funded by uh, non-government, non-Canadian government organizations. And, I, you know, look, I don't know how to feel about it. It's always been that way. I remember when I worked for an MP uh, in the late seventies, early eighties, it was that way. And I think the transparency about where the money is coming from is important. Um, but I also think there's value in the exchanges. Um, so I don't have a strong opinion about it. I do think that there are going to be some situations where it's going to raise eyebrows and people are right to ask questions about it and wonder if there's enough accountability about what, what gets done on 
those junkets. But um, what? I don't know. I why think, don't you uh, I elaborate think a little the, bit on your thoughts? Well, I mean, the reason I perhaps I never would have even thought about it twice if the story we've been covering for the last month or so uh, hasn't been sort of on my mind as well. Right. Which is influence, right? Um, I got a letter last week from one of our listeners saying, you know, you and Bruce and Chantel, you talk all the time about uh, interference from uh, China or wherever it may be. Um, but what are we What are we actually saying is being interfered with? Are they, like, are they... Uh, they changing the ballots in the, on election day? Or are they, uh, you know, preventing people from going to the polls? Or are they like, what are they doing? You can never really tell us what they're actually doing. You just use this term interference all the time and influence. So, and the, the person's right. I mean, I think there have been some occasions where some of that's been detailed, perhaps not on this show, but on others. But um, it made me think on this one. Like, who's to gain from this? Sure, the Canadians, well, they learn a little bit about what Taiwan's really like. But why do the Taiwanese do it? They're trying to influence Canada, right? They're trying to influence those 10 parliamentarians and perhaps others who those 10 may talk to. And it's the same with visits to the Middle East that take place all the time and and elsewhere. Um, So is that interference? Is that kind of influence peddling is that interference i don't know i i think you you might have struck on it maybe we don't have well i'm sure the guidelines are clear to somebody on parliament hill on uh, on how they do these things because I, I i'm sure they just don't know off they go on their own without somebody saying it's okay to do this but i think i'd like to know in a better way what the real rules are um on something like that, because there's kind of a whiff to this. I don't, something bothers me about it. Yeah. Well, you know, I, uh, I sort of believe that these exchanges do add some value. They expose our parliamentarians to uh, more information and, you know, for sure the information that they're going to be exposed to in some instances is delivered with a sense of purpose and advocacy. And that's, that's life. And, um, and we probably uh, bring people uh, from other legislators into our country and do the same thing. Um, I know that I, when I was in my twenties, was invited to go with a bunch of young people who worked in politics on a trip to Germany. And I believe that I don't, I don't have the details of it now, but I believe that the the costs for that trip were probably paid by NATO. Um, and was that an attempt to influence young people working in, in politics on behalf of NATO? Sure, I think it was. But it was also um, obvious that that's what it was. They took us to um, meetings where the discussion about the Cold War and East-West relations uh, was what we talked about, what we listened to, or presentations about why NATO existed and uh, the nature of the risk. And we even went to Checkpoint Charlie. Um, We went through the corridor into Berlin when the wall was still up. So did that affect my thinking? Sure. Um, Was it influence? Yes. Um, Was it interference? I don't necessarily think so, especially if um, if there are some rules around it, and there were. 
Um, we went on a Department of Defense aircraft and landed in Lahr, Germany. And that was all pretty transparent. Um, so I think transparency is the key. I mean, there there probably would be some situations where you'd go, well, I don't know if we should be um, accepting delegations into Russia uh, right now, given the nature of the conflict that we're in with Russia. Uh, but that's a separate question from whether or not exchanges are inherently an unhealthy thing in our system, provided that they're um, transparent, in my opinion, anyway. I think it's a good discussion. I think it's a good um, it's a good thing to be thinking through. I mean, I I see the NATO comparison to to a degree. I took one of those trips uh, in the mid '80s. Uh, same kind of thing to Lahr and uh, Baden, which are the two Canadian bases in Germany, um, because I'd been invited to speak in uh, in Lahr to the Canadian club there, and uh, so I went on a DND plane. And that was that all had to be cleared through the you know CBC ethics department etc. Um, but I guess the you know it, it, this one just in light of everything that's been happening lately, it's just made me kind of wonder about it. Um, okay, glad we had the chance to talk about it and uh, to talk about your uh, your excellent new. Uh, research paper that's uh, available online uh, and the easiest way to get it is go to national news watch on um, uh, on the web and uh, it, it's right there in the one of the top read pieces for the last couple of days um, or you can go to spark what's, what's the spark address to get it sparkadvocacy.ca sparkadvocacy.ca all right that's it for this day tomorrow we uh, we hear from you it's your turn, and the Random Rancher returns after a, a two-week break over the Easter holidays. Um, Friday, it's uh, back to Good Talk with Chantel and Bruce. Friday will be interesting to talk about because we're on, I think, before Katie Telford takes the stand uh, as a witness of one of the parliamentary committees that's looking into election <laughs> interference or influence. Um, but I'm sure there's lots of other things to talk about because there always are. Um Thanks, Bruce. Good to talk to you. We'll talk to you again soon. You bet, Pete. Talk to you. All right. Thank you, too, for listening. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Talk to you again in 24 hours. Mm-hmm.